do turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're continuing our series looking at Romans chapter 12. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 947. 947. We'll read Romans 12, verses 1 through 13. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. We'll be looking uh, fairly closely this evening at Romans 12, verses 9 and 10. I'm just focusing in on those verses so it would be helpful to you um, to, to have that passage before you. I think it's page 947 or 8 or thereabouts in the church Bibles. 948. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Was uh, a French novelist by the name of Jean Giraudoux who once said, The secret of success is sincerity. Once you can fake that, you've got it made. There's a great deal of insincerity in our world, isn't there? Uh, there's much that presents itself as concern and interest. Uh, that is actually just thinly veiled self-interest. There's the kind of out-and-out -out fakery that we all have to be on our guard against nowadays, phone calls and emails and doorstep callers who claim to be offering us something when it's actually a scam and they know it. And then at a more personal and often more hurtful level, there is much in our world that masquerades as love that isn't love. It's just not real. It's not sincere. Paul begins this section with the command, let love be genuine. As we consider in this whole section what it is to offer ourselves up to God in worship, as we consider what it is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to live as the new community that God has made us to be, this is central. Let love 
be genuine. In fact, the tone of these verses goes a bit further because when Paul speaks at the end of verse 10 about showing honor to one another, that word honor is worth noting. It refers to a price, a value, an estimate of worth. It speaks of the preciousness of something. So, Paul says to us, outdo one another in showing this estimate of precious value. In other words, treasure one another. That's the gist of it. Treasure one another. As Paul addresses what relationships in the church are to look like, this is, this is what he says. So, we're going we're to back up and work through these two verses, 9 and 10. Um, before we get into the detail of them, um, I want to ask this question. Who's missing? Who's missing? The preacher always needs to be careful when basing any part of his sermon on something that the text doesn't say. I'm here to tell you what the text does say. Um, but I do think it's worth stepping back for a moment and considering this section more broadly. And when we ask the question, who's missing? The answer is, I am. I am. You go through this, uh, go home later and read through this whole section. I think you'll find it quite striking. There is in these verses nothing of self. There's just nothing of self. It's no accident because the self was offered up to God in, as a living sacrifice back in verse 1. And from that point forward, this is all about love for God, love for the body, service of the saints, humility, self-forgetfulness. And it just keeps going all the way through the chapter. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Serve others in the church by the gifts you've been given. Love one another. Be patient. Contribute to the needs of one another. Show hospitality to others. Don't repay evil. Treat your enemy well. Just on and on it goes. All completely other-oriented and self-forgetful. I mention it because, well, because it's the polar opposite of our culture, isn't it? In which somehow self-assertion has become a virtue. It's an amazing thing. I don't believe in looking back on the past as if it were perfect. You can only do that if you're forgetful. But I do think there was a time when self-denial was understood to be a virtue and not a heresy, which is what it's considered to be today. How can you deny yourself? Self-denial was understood to be a virtue. Self-assertiveness was not particularly admired, and self-obsession was understood to be pathological. Somehow, we've managed to turn that on its head. And that does not bode well for the peace and well-being of a society, a nation which basically amounts to 60 million individuals all asserting their rights against each other is not a recipe for health and peace. And here's the point. The church is to be different. The church is to be different. One of the things that uh, disturbs me, again, just thinking about, about current trends, one of the things that disturbs me about many of the debates that happen in the church at large is that the push for liberalization of this and that and the other, uh, as well as just pressing on without the slightest regard for what God's Word says, as well as that, it just looks exactly like the world. If you listen to the the, the kind of language that's being used. I have a right to live in this way. I have a right to have you affirm that. I, I have a right to serve in this way, and, and so on. It's a long way from a biblical way of thinking. The church has to be different. 
The church is to be a community in which men and women are looking not to their own interests, but to the interests of others. There's a, there, there's a different vision for you. Millions of people all thinking deeply about how they can be a blessing to one another, not how they can get on themselves. What's missing from these verses? Self. And instead, we have Paul's insistence in verse 9 on the real reality of love. The real reality of love. I was just going to call this the reality of love, but that word reality has been downgraded um, in recent years. Uh, We have something called reality TV, which we all know to be the most unreal thing in the world. The utter hideous falseness of it all is actually quite sickening. We have the unreality of fake news. We have the unreality of social media, the kind of Instagram life that is just a lie. It's fakery. It's hypocrisy. It's a mask. Someone's digital presence. (laughs) What is that meant to be? The, The digital presence is a lie. It's not a person. That's what they want to present. Paul says, let love be genuine. Actually, literally, there's no verb. It's actually, when he comes to this section, it's like he just suddenly, it's almost like he just suddenly shouts out an exclamation. Genuine love. That's how this begins. He just says, genuine love. That's what God's people are to display. That word genuine means not acted. Our love is to be not hupokritos. Hupokritos. comes from the Greek word for an actor. It literally means, it sounds strange at first, it literally means um, one who interprets from under. It sounds a bit strange, but the point is that the actor would hold up a mask and would interpret his role from under the mask. So, Hupokritos is, is an actor. Um, this is a first century BC actor's mask held by the Louvre in Paris. In ancient Greece, you'd go to the theater and someone would walk onto the stage holding one of these in front of their face. Um, and uh, maybe it would have a big smile, and you'd think, here is a happy person who has just walked onto the stage. Maybe they'd be, maybe they'd be kind of, often, often if, if they were very ugly and, and, and facially contorted, you would think this is an evil person. That was, that was all fairly basic. Um, I think this person is maybe a bit surprised. I'm not sure if that's just so that, you can, so that the voice can come through. An actor could become old or young, man or woman, astonished or miserable, just by changing his mask. And our love, says Paul, is to be not that. Not that. It's to be real. It's to be, hypo- it's to be not hypocritical, not an ask, not, not an act, not a mask. As John Stott puts it, love is not theater. I'm sure we've all seen examples of it. Maybe we've been guilty of it ourselves, but I'm sure you've seen an example of it where, um, you know, someone's talking to someone and they're all pleasant to their face, you know. It's lovely to see you, and let's catch up again soon. They walk out the the room. Oh, I cannot stand that person. Have you ever seen that happen? Oh, lovely. The mask goes on, the mask comes off. Uh, you could argue that this first command, this, this exclamation, genuine love, is almost a, a heading for the whole section to come. Paul tells us, love genuinely, and then he shows us how, um, and there are things about the grammar in the, the next section that support that. Um, so, this idea of the real reality of love that is to drive God's people 
Um, it can apply to all love. It applies to love for God, applies to love for other believers, love for enemies. All of that will come here in Romans 12. Um, but in the context, given what comes before about our use of spiritual gifts to serve others, given what comes after about loving one another with affection, I think the, the main thrust of this relates to relationships in the church. This is to be a community in which God's people show true, genuine concern for one another's well-being, and that is to be practical. In the same way that genuine faith is always seen in works, genuine love is always expressed in practical care for each other. And if love is genuine, it will, it will give, it will serve, it will sacrifice, because that's what love does. Self is nowhere to be seen, only the other counts. 1 John 3, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And there's to be a quality to this love which is different from what the world offers. We need to remember as we go through this, it's so important to remember as we go through this, that, that the whole of Romans 12 um, after verse 1 comes after verse 1. By the mercies of God. That's the crucial thing. That's the banner over the whole of this chapter. By the mercies of God, I urge you to live in this way, because it's only by the mercies of God that we can live in this way. So, uh, listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. He says, we cannot possibly understand the teaching of this subsection and profit by it unless we constantly bear in mind the teaching of the first two verses of the chapter. If you do not know what they teach, and if you have not experienced them, it is no use you're dealing with this subsection. You will not be able to do it. This is only an appeal to those who are born again. No man or woman can live this without being born again, without having a power which is greater than the power of human nature. That's Martin Lloyd-Jones. The genuine love that, that Paul commands is not anything that the natural man can produce. It's coming out of the experience of the gospel. And so, it, it, that means it gives us a clue about what kind of love this is. This is not the kind of love that you can go out and, and find anywhere, in, in any family out there, or, or in any group of friends out there. This is a kind of love that only the grace of the gospel produces. This is spirit-wrought work, because love, in the deepest sense, love is, is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the life of Christ in us that produces that fruit in us. Anything else? Well, anything else is just the plastic stuff that you buy from a supermarket, and it sits in your it's in a bowl, ornamental, but useless, fake fruit. Only the Spirit of God can produce genuine love in the sense that Paul means here. So, let love be genuine, the real reality of love. But he immediately adds something else, and something else that might appear to be unrelated, uh, still in verse 9, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, I think what Paul is speaking about here is the truthfulness of love, and I'll explain that in a moment. But before I do, let's just get our terms sorted out. We need to get a proper feel of this verse because he uses a couple of very strong terms here. The word abhor, abhor what is evil, that is a word that means to shrink away from something in revulsion and disgust. It's a very strong term, and that's a challenge, isn't it? Because the whole point of temptation is that temptation happens when evil 
is presented to us as something attractive. For one reason or another, it's attractive to us. That's, that's what the evil one longs to do, to persuade us that evil is desirable. Look at the fruit. Look how good it looks. And you'll be like God. Look how desirable this is. It's often said, often said that temptation is not sin. And of course, that is true. It's true and it's important. But there's something nonetheless that we need to understand. And this is... This is an important thing that is often overlooked in the Christian life, actually, I think. We need to understand that the distortion of our desires is a part of our fallenness and sinfulness. If if I find that I consistently desire what God prohibits, and I consistently do not desire what God loves then that in itself is a sign that there is something wrong in my heart. There is something wrong in my heart, and that is not something that I can rest content with. Cannot be content with that situation. My earnest longing and prayer must be that God would align my heart with His, so that I come to love what He loves and hate what He hates. If His Spirit is living in me and controlling me more and more, if Christ is being formed in me, then surely that must be a part of what will happen. I read a while ago um, an article, quite a striking article by John Piper, in which he spoke of God's grace towards him in the area of sexual temptation. And he was very clear. He said, look, I'm not I'm claiming any um, you know, extraordinary holiness. I'm not claiming to be immune to, to lust. He spoke of the steps that he needed to take to guard his eyes and his heart. But he also said, and I found this interesting, he calls this one of the greatest works of divine grace that he has experienced in his life. He said that early in his life, he had asked for and had been given a strong revulsion at the slightest hint of sexual infidelity towards his wife. That's an interesting thing. He had gone to God in prayer and said, give me this. So that while he was physically attracted to his wife, he found the very idea of touching any other woman sexually not only morally wrong, but physically revolting. He would shrink away from it in horror, just immediately the thought of it. No, how could it be? God God gave this to him, this understanding of the, the ugliness of sin. That's what Paul is describing here when he says, abhor what is evil, shrink from it. We don't hate sin enough. I'm sure that's partly because we don't ask God enough to give us a holy hatred of sin. Abhor what is evil. On the other hand, hold fast to what is good. Again, it's quite a strong term, and it's exactly the opposite. This, this holding fast. Instead of shrinking away, we're to be strongly attracted. If you can imagine an immensely powerful magnet clamping onto something, you can't pull it apart. If you can imagine um, super glue just putting two things together and, and they can't be separated any longer. This, this bond um, that exists. Uh, the, the word that Paul uses here is actually used elsewhere of the marriage relationship, which is designed. To, to bring a man and woman together in this permanent, inseparable bond. 
This is how God's people are to relate to what is good, what is evil, oh, we, sh- we, you know, we shrink from, disgusts us. What is good, we're drawn towards. This is what God wants for us. And I don't know about you, much as, much as there's profound challenge in that, I also think there's something just gloriously straightforward about that in a world where everything is shades of gray, isn't it? Abhor what is evil, flee from it, love good and embrace it. And remember again that the context for these words is Christian community. Where love is genuine, we are able to be honest with each other. We all know we're all sinners, and that means that it's safe to admit that. But at the same time, we're not okay with sin. That's the thing. The the, the church community is to be a community where we all know we're all sinners. We all get that. We all know we're only here by grace, but we are not okay with sin. We don't make excuses for it in ourselves or others. We don't pretend like it's okay because it would be impolite to talk about it. Matt, the way Matt Chandler, U.S. pastor, describes it is that our churches should be safe but not soft. They should be places where broken people are welcomed, received gladly, but, but also where we're continually challenging one another towards repentance and helping one another, another towards wholeness and holiness in Christ. And so the church lives with what Chandler calls the grace-filled tension of receiving sinners while simultaneously making war on sin. So we're battling evil because we hate it, and we're pursuing good because we love it, but crucially we are doing this together, and we're doing it in an atmosphere of genuine love. We're making war on sin, but we're, we're, we're waging war together. You are not a boxer in a ring you are a soldier in a rank. You're not a boxer in a ring. You're a soldier in a rank. You're part of an army of comrades. And part of the reason for this new community that God creates through the gospel is that, is that it's together in love that we best learn what it is to, uh, to, to reject evil, to abhor evil, and to embrace good. You go to someone and you say, I have this issue in my life. Would you pray with me? Would you help me? Would you remind me of the gospel? And would you not be disgusted by me, but would you love me? And in love, will you help me to learn to hate sin more? That's that's the kind of thing that should be happening in a church. Or even, even, someone comes to you and says, I think we need to talk about something in your life. You're my brother, you're my sister, I love you, but I'm worried about this. Not claiming to be superior, but can we talk about this? Genuine love, but making war on sin. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And in case we are in any doubt about the nature of this love that we are to share, Paul goes on in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. He actually uses two words, the love one another and the brotherly affection. They both have their roots in family love, a kind of natural affection that exists between those who share bonds of blood. We all know that that can go wrong in families, don't we? Um, but we also know that love is the norm 
in a family, and that the bonds of family love are both natural and strong. They don't have to be worked up. They just come. They exist because the relationship exists. These are your people. You love them. And so, Paul is telling us exactly the same thing applies in the church. These are your people. And and, and so, love them. And and although I've said that love is very practical, which it is, the the, the language of this command is unavoidably emotional. There there is emotion all all through these verses. The authorized version is great, actually. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Isn't that great? Be kindly affectioned one to another. It's as if Paul pauses, you know, in like, a, like the, you know, the never satisfied music instructor that says, once more with feeling. He says, keep going, love one another with feeling. Christian fellowship is not just about liking one another. It's obviously not just about pretending to like each other. Once you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. But at the same time, Paul is not envisaging that people in the church will be basically indifferent to each other at an emotional level, but will kind of steel themselves and discipline themselves to act like they love each other. That's, that's not the, the tone of this. He is, he is commanding our attitudes and actions, but He is also commanding our emotions. He is commanding our emotions. Some people struggle with that because well, how can you command emotions? Our culture thinks of emotions like some kind of external force that compels us to do things that we can't control. It's very convenient if you want to have an excuse for things that you choose to do, but my emotions made me do it. You know, I just fell in love with someone. You know, what could I do? Helpless. It's the kind of thing that people say. It doesn't wash with God. God commands our emotions all over the place. Rejoice in the Lord. Find joy in God. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Hurt with those who hurt. We'll come to that in a few verses. How how does that work? How can you command emotions? Well, because the whole orientation of our life carries our emotions with it. We are are holistic people. It is not actually possible to be gripped by the grace of the gospel and to be brought into the fellowship of the redeemed and, and not love the people of God. How could you do that? Back to 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. One of the core signs of Christian renewal. How does it happen? By the mercies of God, in the light of all that God has done for you. We're to look with spiritual eyes and recognize the deep, unbreakable unity that exists between all who are one in Christ. We're to understand these are those to whom I am permanently spiritually united. These are those for whom Christ died. These are those with whom I will spend eternity. These are those who know with me what it is to to love Christ, but to long to love Him more, to hate sin, but to long to hate it more, to know the, the sorrows of Christian sacrifice and the joys of Christian hope. These are my brothers and sisters. These are my people. Of course I love them. How could I not? In some ways, some of you will know what I'm about to describe. It is it's a bittersweet thing. It's painful and sweet at the same time. 
In some ways, the bonds of faith are stronger than the bonds of blood. Some of you have known what it is to experience that. How the unity that you find with your brothers and sisters in Christ can make you feel closer to them than you feel to your brothers and sisters or other family members. Because you share with these people what is deepest about you. In some ways, that's how it should be. In some ways, uh, I think I've said before, uh, you often hear people at funerals speaking about the deceased, and it's amazing how often you hear them, well, it's not amazing, it's just natural, how often you hear them commenting on how much they love their family. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Of course, that is right to, right to recognize that. But at the same time, sometimes it's presented as if this were the greatest height of nobility, unheard of moral accomplishment, to love your family. Paul's whole point here is everybody loves their family. He uses family terms to tell us to love one another, love each other like family. The, the, the same thing that applies. There's something chronically wrong if you don't love your family, and the same thing applies to the new family to which you've been introduced by the mercies of God. So, love one another. Love with brotherly affection. And then, well, we finish tonight with that delightful expression that I touched on at the beginning from the end of verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Great verse. I do one another in showing honor. Um, I, I can remember, I'm sure, I'm sure many of us can, I can remember old-fashioned Sunday school picnics from when I was growing up. You know, you all pile onto the bus and you'd go away and there would be tea and cream cakes and games and races and usually rain. Um, I'm sure you, sure you know the kind of thing. One of the amazing things about such occasions is the sheer spirit of competitiveness that suddenly breaks out in the races. It's terrifying what Christians will do to each other. Um, uh, when it comes to, to church events and, and, and competitions, we see something similar at Holiday Club Family Night. Many of you have seen that. But Paul tells us here that there is, there is another kind of competition that should be going on all the time under the surface of church life. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's a classic example of the upside-down values of God's kingdom. We are to be in it to lose it. The world is in it to win it. We are to be in it to lose it. We are to honor one another, to value one another. We are to focus on giving honor, not getting it, to recognize the value of others, not establish our own worth. It's not about a a forced, false thing. You know, I don't want everybody at the end of the evening standing, holding the door open. No, no, you first. No, you first. Uh, You know, it's, it's not about that. But, but, but in deep ways, we are to be competing with each other to attach value to each other. Treasure one another. That's what it means. Recognize the pricelessness, the preciousness of your brothers and sisters in Christ, purchased not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Treat them accordingly. Aren't we today creating a culture in which this does not happen? And this whole orientation of self and others, so important. I was mentioning to someone recently a a wonderful observation that Walter Hooper made about his friend C.S. Lewis. 
Um, he, he wrote this, I think, in, the, in an introduction to a book of poetry that, that Lewis wrote, um, I think published posthumously. Um, he said, Hooper said, although Lewis owned a huge library, he possessed very few of his own works. His phenomenal memory recorded almost everything he had read, and if you know anything of C.S. Lewis, you'll know that's a lot, recorded almost everything he had read except his own writings, an appealing fault. Often, when I quoted lines from his own poems, he would ask who the author was. And then this is how Hooper sums it up. He was a very great scholar, but no expert in the field of C.S. Lewis. We today are creating a culture in which we're all experts in the field of self. That is not what the gospel does. The gospel does something else altogether. Just over two weeks ago, none of us had heard of a man called Arnaud Beltram, then an Islamic terrorist who hostages in a supermarket in Carcassonne. One of them was called Julie. She was a checkout operator. She was 40 years old, married with a little girl. And despite the fact that this terrorist had stated his intention was to kill people in uniform, Arnaud Beltram, this police officer in uniform, uh, offered to exchange places with Julie, which is what happened. He was stabbed and shot and died from his injuries. His wife made clear that what had motivated his actions was a deep commitment to the one who said that there is no greater love than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Julie was interviewed in the press, and this is what she said, very, very simply. He gave his life for me. He had himself killed so that I could live. It's got to change a person, doesn't it? Let love be genuine, says Paul, and do this by the mercies of God. Have your heart so shaped by the gospel and by the sacrificial love shown to you that you in turn might love and sacrifice for others. Nothing of self, just love God and treasure one another. Let's pray. God, our Father, the grace of the gospel is very, very great. It is almost overwhelming to us. We, we pray that you would pray that you would imprint it on our hearts, that it would sink into our hearts and into every part of our thinking and existing. We so quickly forget. We forget what you have done. We forget what Christ has done. And because we forget, we are not changed by it as we should be. We are not shaped by it as we should be. And so, send your Holy Spirit to us, we pray, to, to make these things real and powerful in our lives. The mercies of God, the mercies of God that change everything, 
that transform our lives. He died for me. He had himself killed that I might live. And now then, I will live for him. I will live in the light of what he has done. And I will love and I will treasure. Father, may this be true of us, we pray. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.